Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my great pleasure to have Dominic Servini on the podcast. Welcome, Dominic. Hey, Jeremy. So Dominic is the VP of Revenue Operations at DHI Group. And DHI, if you have not heard of them, you may have heard of some of their sub-brands because they are a holding group for a number of career marketplaces, but they are one of the leading providers of career marketplaces for technology professionals across industries in financial services and with active government security clearances. So with that out of the way, I'd love to get to know you first before we dive into sales forecasting. And I'm going to ask you the same question I ask all my guests, which is what's one of your favorite sales books of all time and what's something you got out of it? I would say my favorite sales book was the Sales Acceleration Formula book by Mark Roberge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love how he keeps it fairly simple when he focuses about four key areas. One is sales hiring. Second would be sales training. Third would be sales management. And then the fourth would be demand generation. And when he looks at these individual items, he looks at it from a formula standpoint. Yeah, one of my favorite parts of that book is all about because I, I paid particular attention to the sales management piece. Is you know he he stresses the importance of focusing on one skill at a time. Some of these things are just reminders, but they're really really good reminders because I think a lot of sales managers try to coach reps on too many things simultaneously without picking the one that's likely to have the biggest impact on the business and and on the individual. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And he called out how by focusing in on that one item, you're not overloading them on day one, right? It's just be very clear on where you think they need to improve, put in together a plan for that person to improve on that one area. And then obviously the cadences around reviewing and ensuring that you know the individual is on path to succeed. That's what I really enjoyed about that section too. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic book and creative guy. Yep. Well, yeah. Let's let's get into the to the heart of the matter. So when you know when you and I were chatting, uh, well, actually, Jeremy, you didn't tell me what your favorite sales book is. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love it. Not that many people ask me that question. Um, my favorite sales book of all time probably is the Sales Manager Survival Guide. It's so dense; it almost reads like a textbook, but. It is the most comprehensive thing I've ever read on sales management. I would say in that sales management world, a close second is probably cracking the sales management code, which I think is much more readable, but does not have the depth that the sales manager survival guide has in it. Great. Thank you for asking me that. Well, yeah. So let's get into the topic of the day around forecasting. I'm just curious if you could describe for me what your approach is to sales forecasting, whether it's at DHI or you've worked at some incredible companies before DHI as well. So what's your preferred approach? Yeah. So I think when you talk about a sales process, it begins with a sales methodology. One of the more popular methodologies that I've been fortunate enough to be part of is the Sandler sales methodology, right? Where a key focus about it is when you're speaking to customers is really understanding the pain that they experience, right? As it relates to a challenge internally. And from there, it's really about building a sales process that for the better part of my career has been focused around seven standard stages across that process where you would begin first with a qualification stage. And obviously, based on certain key milestones that you would want to accomplish, you would progress to a discovery stage, onto a demo stage, then stage four would be a proposal stage. And then five, uh, stage five and six, obviously, is the, probably the most exciting part of a sales cycle is the final negotiations with prospects or customers. 
And stage six would be hopefully getting that verbal confirmation that you've been selected as the vendor of choice. And then stage seven would be in a perfect world, you close winning an opportunity. When you look at these stages, they all carry a probability percentage to win. And obviously, as you work through the sales cycle, that probability percentage would increase to the point where when you're in, for example, final negotiation stages, the probability percentage could be, I've seen anywhere between 65% to 75%. And then obviously, close one being 100%. I have typically also been a part of when it comes to forecasting is, as it relates to these stages, you want to aggregate them into three forecast categories. Typically, what I have done is the first four stages, that would be from qualified to proposal. We would tag that as a, a pipeline forecast category. Then when you get into stage five, which is negotiation, that would be considered a best case opportunity or a forecast. And stage six, which is the verbal notification, we would consider that a commit. And obviously, if you've won an opportunity, that would also go into your commit. Those are the three core elements of the forecast process as I've managed it. It's based around the methodology, the processes, and then the stages and forecast categories. Got it. So just to re- I mean, rewind on a couple of things. And by the way, I love and I want to expand on the idea of tying forecast categories to stages. But before we get there, you know, people talk about the differences between sales methodologies and sales processes. And you mentioned you use Sandler as the methodology you have the seven-stage process. How do you think about the distinction between or the overlap amongst a methodology and a process? When I think of the methodology, I think of how the buyers today, which today more than ever, they are informed, right? I've seen different stats on this that says anywhere between you know 65% to 75% of the way, when a buyer comes to you or you connect with a buyer, they're about 75% through their buying journey, right? Just trying to identify which vendor is going to ultimately solve the issue or the pain that they're experiencing. Then when you talk about the sales process, I think what has changed over time because of the buyer's journey and the fact that these buyers are so well-informed is now sales processes have been re-engineered to really support the customer across their buying journey, right? Just because they're so well-informed. And really ensuring that your process is tied to that ensures that whether you're talking to a decision maker, an influencer, users, as long as you have a process that's lined up and aligned to their buyer journey, it makes for conversations easier. You see accelerated sales cycles, and I think it's it's quicker to get a decision out of them. Got it. So yeah, getting into the idea of mapping forecast categories into sales stages, I think it's fascinating for the following reason is that you often see people triangulate to get to a forecast number in the end. And one data point that they use is the weighted pipeline, as you described, going from whatever 5 or 10% at qualifying through 100% at closed one, and maybe your verbal vendor of choice is at 85 or 90, whatever it happens to be. So you, you, know, you apply those historical weighted percentages to the pipeline, and then you come up with a weighted pipeline number. The sort of parallel universe is to use those forecast categories and, you know, the terminology uses is what's embedded directly into Salesforce pipeline, best case and commit. And then you sort of come up with a second number and then you triangulate among those two. So it's interesting that you actually map the stages. Is that a hard mapping or are sales managers or salespeople able to override that default mapping? Yeah. For the most part, you want to set it up that it's, I would say it's a little bit of both, to be quite honest. 
where you try to make it as structured as possible where you keep moving forward, but you also want to be flexible enough that, for example, if you have a one-off that just doesn't make sense, the way it's progressing, we typically allow a rep to go backwards. Typically, it's only one stage, right? So if a customer, for example, a prospect that is, they've given you verbal acceptance. In the normal process, that would be considered part of your commit. But let's say the prospect has gone dark for about a week or so, especially if it's gone past the expected close date. Well, then in that example, we would allow the rep to go backwards into the final negotiation stage, right? So that would take it out of commit and obviously move it backwards into a best case forecast category. Reason being is if you've mapped out the expected milestone dates to a decision date, are so critical that if you see that you've gone past an expected close date by, let's say, a week or so, and communication has slowed down a bit with the prospect, we want to allow the sales rep the opportunity to move backwards. Interesting. So so rather than updating the forecast category, your guidance is for them to update the stage, which then will trigger those forecast category updates. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Maybe I misspoke. In that example, they would actually be able to adjust the forecast category. Okay, so they might stay in verbal, but they would go back down from commit to best case. Right, because again, if if they truly in that example had given us verbal, obviously that should be noted. That's a huge activity that needs to be discussed. So we don't want to lose sight of that they've given us the verbal notification. Got it. I'm also curious on the probability percentages, right? I mean, people start out, I guess, with some sort of expected numbers, right? I mean, you're progressing towards 100%, so you're probably not going to be too far off. But I'm curious how frequently you've recalculated the probabilities. Part of the reason I ask this is we've been having a debate internally about whether or not we even show the probabilities by stage to our salespeople because we're recalculating them with some frequency and we don't necessarily want them to see that like this is a 17% one month and it's a 21% the next month, right? So I'm, I'm curious how you approach that. So we've always shown it to them, right? So the way we've done it is typically we would measure it. If you have a what I would say a well-defined organization process set up correctly, we typically have only adjusted it once a year. Under the example you just mentioned where some organizations may not show the probability percentage to the reps, in that case, then it probably would make sense to adjust it. I don't know that the frequency, I would think it wouldn't make more sense than maybe at the most on a biannual uh, basis, because obviously if you're doing it more than that, then something is not working correctly. (laughs) Yeah. For us, for example, it doesn't move much in a given stage. We do it about once a quarter, just sort of tweak them just a little bit to help with the forecast accuracy. I'm also curious on your thoughts on allowing salespeople to modify the probability on their own. Do you allow reps to modify probabilities of individual deals? No, we've never done that just because I try to be cautious as far as what they're allowed to change. Because when you're talking about, especially let's say a hundred to 200 headcount sales organization, the chances that reps handle adjustments like that consistently throughout the organization, in my opinion, is very low, right? And then what happens is when you look at forecasting by different teams or segments, there's different pockets as to how they're going about handling the forecast. So that's just been my opinion is never to really give them the ability to change the probability percentages. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned larger sales organizations. For listeners' references, Dominic's got about 
over two decades of experience and in that time has worked for Fortune 10 sized companies or global 10 companies on down to companies that are in the hundreds of millions range. Have you found a major difference in the approach to forecasting at those, like I think you're at NCR, which is huge, right? The way that NCR might forecast versus some of the smaller organizations that you work for? I would say the way you run, like we were talking about, a weighted forecast, the stages, the forecast has been pretty consistent. However, I would say the level of detail probably is different in some of these companies. So I've seen that companies where the level of inspections as to how they go through their forecasts is where it's literally scripted. The entire forecast cadence, and again, the forecast cadence begins at the rep level through first-line managers and then works its way all the way up, essentially all the way up to the CEO, right? And I've been at companies that are extremely, extremely scripted as to how every meeting should run, literally how every question is asked (laughs) and how every answer should be structured, right? And then I've been at companies where they've been a little bit more flexible, right, as to how to run that so that you're not getting into the nitty gritty details of every single opportunity. So I would say that the overall framework is about the same, but the intensity on the details, I've seen differences by companies. And my experience working for companies of different sizes is in some weird ways, it's not even really that larger companies necessarily have more discipline. I've seen large companies that were relatively loose, and I've seen smaller companies that were highly disciplined. Has that been your experience too, that it's not totally a function of company size? agree with you 100%, Jeremy. And I think it also depends on if you're a publicly traded company, right? Without stating the obvious, on a publicly traded company, when you talk about forecasts, it's all about meeting expectations for the quarter. So flexibility there is really at a bare minimum. <laughs> on forecast accuracy, I'm getting to that like public companies, right? Public companies, I don't know if they do it as much as they have before, since I, I have not been paying attention to earnings releases for a long time, but they would usually give a guidance range, right? For each quarter, we expect this range of revenues, this range of earnings per share. When you're calling a quarter in advance, what's a reasonable range? Is it like plus or minus 10%, plus or minus 5%? What's the typical range in normal times? I would say plus or minus 5 to 7%. Now, obviously, you know, I'm just speaking to really the companies I've been at. I've seen companies that are even tighter than that. But generally, I would say about 5%. Yeah. I mean, I I guess there's different worlds, right? Is where you're kind of limited. If your sales capacity limited, then you can really forecast well because you know exactly how much sales capacity you can afford. If you're a very large company growing at whatever, five to 10%, then probably you can get to a tighter forecast. It's probably in the middle zone where you're highly subject to market demand that it becomes harder. But yeah, I think that sounds like a pretty good range. Yeah, and I would say to you know SaaS companies because uh, I've worked at SaaS companies as well as just hardware companies, and obviously the SaaS model that came out over the last decade plus, right, or two decades now, I feel like it is, has been a more predictable model to forecast. So companies that are let's say 100% SaaS, their range may be a little bit tighter than companies that are either a mix of SaaS or non-SaaS, or that are not non-SaaS entirely. That makes, yeah, it makes sense. One thing I was also curious about and your approach to this is kind of the frequency or cadence with which people are doing that roll up, right? You talked about, you know, reps doing their estimates that rolls up to first line managers on up to the CRO and ultimately the CEO. 
I mean, obviously it depends on the nature of the business, but what sort of recommendations do you have around how people should think about the frequency of the cadence and also what sorts of getting really tactical, what sorts of meetings or what have you are, are good forcing mechanisms to ensure pipeline health? Yeah, so it begins with the first line managers and the individual reps. I would suggest this, especially for publicly traded companies, where the first line managers are meeting with the reps at least once a week to go through their forecast, right? And again, depending on the company, the industry, it could vary, but in a typical forecast model, you'd want to be looking at your current quarter forecast as well as one quarter out if you if it makes sense for your business. Some companies, you know, tend to focus on current month plus one month out. Again, totally dependent on the company and the industry. And it typically starts with that first line sales manager and rep. I've always professed to do it not one-on-one, but have that meeting as a team because the focus of the meeting is truly how everyone is performing against their expected forecasts for that given period, but then talk about really the challenges, right, on deals that they're forecasting or need to execute on in order to hit their number, right? In order to stay away from the nitty-gritty details is go around the room, rep by rep, talk about their committed deals, essentially, right? And if any of those committed deals are in trouble, then let's talk a little bit about our best case opportunities. The outcome of that meeting should be obviously an updated forecast, which then the first line manager would go to the, let's say the VP of sales. And then typically that meeting would be the VP of sales with a chief revenue officer or a chief sales officer. That typically would happen, again, in a team-like setting once a week, And obviously, similar cadence to talk about what the commit is, what the best case is for the period of measurement, talk about obstacles, right? What can we do to help the rep overcome obstacles or to just better execute on their forecast? And then the output of that meeting essentially would be our official forecast that would go up to the CEO level. Do you think with those meetings that happen higher level, right, with the VP of sales or CRO, do you think that the reps themselves should be in those meetings if it's, I, mean, I guess, the, maybe the five biggest deals or 10 biggest deals in the period? Or should the managers know those deals as well as the reps? Yeah, I would say that the manager should know the deals as much as the reps. At the end of the day, the last thing we want to do is have too many meetings for the sales reps, right? So if the managers are really managing their teams, their expectations correctly, they should know the top deals, right? Because those should be always the first deals that you review, in my opinion, right? As you're getting close to the end of the month, end of the quarter, whatever it might be. And that manager should be able to represent at that next level meeting. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that. I mean, it's probably pretty universal, so I don't know that it's rocket science I'm saying it, but I'm a big fan of the weekly rhythm to it. I, I in particular, take great delight in the first week of any measurement period, whether it's the first week of the month or the first week of the quarter, as you discussed before, depending on what cycle people are on. Uh, to watch the pipeline kind of dramatically change. So I, I try not to call a period until that first pipeline forecast roll-up meeting has happened You know, at the beginning of the month. You get a lot more accuracy after that. I agree with you 100%. So, and just to be clear, the weekly forecast meeting is one where you're focused on you know the, the current commits and best case. Again, whether it's current month or a quarter, But like you just spoke about, an official pipeline review meeting, that's a separate meeting, right? Where once a month, and we typically would do it at the beginning of the month, where a manager 
in this example, actually sits one-on-one, the first-line manager, with the rep and really scrubs through the pipeline, right? And the purpose and the outcome of that meeting is different than a weekly forecast meeting. The purpose of that pipeline review meeting once a month is really to assess the quality or the health of an individual rep's pipeline, or I would like to refer to as, you know, looking at pipeline sufficiency to ensure that they have enough pipeline to hit their quota, right? It's a natural conversation where you inspect the pipeline to see if they have enough pipeline, the age of the pipeline, really the health of the pipeline. And if someone, for example, does not have enough pipeline as deemed by the sales manager, then the next logical questions would be, all right, then let's look at some of your activity metrics, right, or KPIs to understand where potentially you're struggling a bit to build enough pipeline to support your overall forecast. Yeah, actually, it gets at one of the books we mentioned earlier, Cracking the Sales Management Code, that you basically start that inspection with the ultimate results. Is Are they bringing in enough deals? You peel back one layer and ask, do they have enough pipeline to get to their target? And then absolutely, like if if there is not sufficient pipeline, then look at activity. I would assume you're also an advocate of like, if they're hitting their numbers and their pipeline looks good, then there's no need to dig into the activity numbers. That's correct. Yeah. I'm also curious about like not just the sort of seasoned reps, but how you think about forecasting when you're growing your sales headcount. What sort of models have you used to to account for ramping reps? Particularly, how are you thinking about enterprise ramps when often the ramped productivity can be one year, 18 months, sometimes 24 months, depending on what kind of deals they're selling? Yep. So in those examples where the sales cycles are so much longer in, in enterprise, There's a number of key activities, right? Whether we're talking about face-to-face meetings, that typically was always a very important metric that we like to measure for the enterprise reps, because obviously that makes a heck of a lot more sense for an enterprise rep to be in front of an enterprise prospect. Also, we would have specific scorecards as far as ensuring that the enterprise reps are hidden, the key individuals that are going to make the decision, not not just the decision makers, but also influencers. So influencers are definitely, I think, an area that sometimes can get overlooked because, of course, you have people that ultimately are considered or deemed a decision maker. But we know influencers, whether they are the users of a tool or a solution or get impacted by the solution, influencers are almost on par with decision makers. So when you're talking about an enterprise organization, there are more people that are obviously going to be involved in the decision making process, right? So ensuring that the right people are being brought to the table, that too would be another key metric that we would measure on longer term deals and hitting certain milestones, right? Because when you have a enterprise opportunity, there are a number of milestone dates that have to happen, right? And we typically would start backwards, right? Where we would say, okay, you're looking to go live with a decision a year from now. Let's work our way backwards to look at the key milestone dates or sequence of events that have to occur in order for us to move forward and make a decision. I assume you're a big fan of the mutual action plan. Yes. <laughs> yes. How have you ensured discipline that people are actually using and moving forward with mutual action plans? You want to ultimately tie certain actions and make sure they're in line with the estimated close date. Right. So if you have a mutually agreed upon sequence of events, the last event should be the close date. 
And you want to build it so that if any key milestone date is changed, that it would have an impact on your estimated close date. It's a whole integrated process, right? It's going to ultimately impact your forecast as well, right? So there's ways to go around it, but I would say there's no 100% bulletproof way around it. Yeah, and I think that comment of like, there's no 100% bulletproof way to do things applies to forecasting in general. It, it actually brings me back to the last question I wanted to ask, which goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier is, you know, you mentioned that some companies that you've worked with have these hyperscripted approaches to the rhythm, and even particularly down to the individual meeting and the types of questions that are asked when they're doing a, a deal review and so on. Where do you fall? Are, are you in the sort of hyper-scripted camp or are you in the little bit more flexibility camp? Definitely in a little bit more of the flexible stage. I almost feel as though the super-scripted is if you have a very immature sales organization, it would be helpful just to ensure that the cadence and how you want to run it is followed a certain way. But as you work with more you know, seasoned organizations, I don't think you have to be as scripted. And especially when you're talking about an enterprise opportunity, I think when you get hyperscripted, you start leaving the creativity out of it, right? Because it's almost as though you're looking at a checklist of, okay, I got to answer, you know, A, B, and C, and this is how I need to answer it, right? And then you become very robotic, right? Which we don't want that. Um, at the end of the day, we want to allow for creativity is, is how I kind of look at, at it. Yeah. If you tried to inspect everything, you'd learn nothing. You can't cover it all. And there are some things you need to go deeper on. Like, you know, I think in your example earlier, if the elephant in the room is that the prospect went dark after giving a verbal, all your time and energy should be spent on reactivating and engaging that buyer as opposed to asking a million rote questions in the process. Right. End of the day, our job is to ensure that the reps have everything at their disposal to be successful. And the purpose of those inspections are really to ensure that we've ensured their ability to close deals, right? And if there's anything they need, that's the perfect form. This isn't a pipeline review meeting. It's not even to inspect every single opportunity. If they have enough opportunities to cover their forecast, that's great. Then just start looking at specifically what are the open deals left to close, right? Again, I, I stress that I think it's great to have a team format to those meetings because, again, what one rep may be facing as an issue, there's a high probability that other reps on the team are facing the same issues. So learning as a team, I think, during forecast meetings, there's a lot of benefits to that. Yeah, there, there are definitely different schools of thoughts on whether whether that is a, a good idea to do the team thing or not. But I think there is so much learning benefit to hearing what kinds of questions are asked. And I've noticed on calls where we bring multiple reps together for deal reviews, they, they get progressively better, right? Because the reps who are waiting in the wings are asking themselves those same questions so that they're prepared to answer them when it's their turn. And you do get more and more depth. So that, that learning is definitely going on. Otherwise, you would be reinventing the wheel with each rep. Right. So Dominic, such a pleasure having you on. If people want to learn more about you or about DHI, what is the, what's the best way to do that? I would suggest go to LinkedIn and just connect with me. Otherwise, you can reach out to me at dominic.cervini at dhigroupinc.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. It was great catching up with you again. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. Paige McCauley is our producer. Peter Lepinto is our editor. 
The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.